What is up, podcast listeners? This is Cut the Shit, Get Fit, and I am about to interview Alex Krzyzewski, who also has a really long, complicated last name like myself, who's also Polish, but the twist is he is all the way over in the UK with an English accent, super, super cool. Lately, I've been interviewing a lot of people across the way, over the water on the other side of the pond, and it's been sweet to get different takes on fitness and health in all these different parts of the world. So, if any of you are, well, know of any other coaches or health professionals outside of the US and Canada, shoot me an email, message me on Instagram and let me know because I would love to interview them. So without further ado, here is Alex. Hopefully you enjoy. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your lovely host, Rafael Maciszewski, and joining me for the first time, another Polish coach, PT, Alex Krzyzewski. Say hello. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Raph. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. So I always like to start the show with some easy, easy questions. And the first one is, uh, what do you got planned for the weekend? Uh, I've actually got uh, my first workshop this weekend. Uh, One of the uh, gyms I work out of in my local town in in Chelmsford are uh, hosting me for a two-hour deadlift workshop. So I see see some of their members as patients and clients. And yeah, we're just doing a two-hour throwdown of of hands-on stuff to get people lifting uh, with better technique, with less pain, and, and more weight on the bar. Awesome. So the second easy question, since we were chatting about where you're from, because when I was like looking you up online, I'm like, I don't even know where the hell that is. So for the audience, tell them where you're from and what's the thing to do there in your town. Okay, so uh, so I live in uh, Chelmsford, which is probably about an hour away from London in over in the UK. Uh, there isn't actually a great deal to do in, in Chelmsford. It's like a, a suburban town where things just kind of tick over. Uh, if we want to do something big, we'll go into London. If not, we just sort of tick over and, and chill out, out, in, out in Chelmsford. Nice. Um, and then last easy question, what's the current book you're reading or listening to? Uh, so I, I actually finished a book yesterday, so I've not nice. started a new one just yet. Um, I finished reading Start With Why. Nice. Which uh, which is a real good read and, and giving me some good uh, things to reflect on in terms of my own practice and, and moving forwards with things. Awesome, um, yeah, that's a good book. What's interesting is like I had another guy on my show and he mentioned how he hates Simon Sinek and, uh, and like, <laughs> he didn't really want to get into it, but he essentially like the gist of it was that like he kind of makes millennials like the worst types of people out there, and I'm like. I get it, but at the same time, it's like there's a lot of millennials out there that are, you know, the outliers that actually yeah. put in a lot of work. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, what do you think of Simon Sinek? Uh, well, it's the first book of his that I've read. Yeah. And uh, after listening to your, your show on why yeah. this week, um, it's quite interesting how you can boil everything down to that very fundamental question. And, again, if you if you start there, it seems to make the whole process of whatever you're looking at much much easier so um, i'm looking forward to putting that into into practice yeah have you ever seen simon uh, simon sinek's like i think it was a ted talk but like the smaller one 
where he, was, uh, he explained his like whole why theory of how Apple advertises. Have you ever seen that? No, I remember him talking in the book about going against the uh, going against the grain and yeah. and building a brand based on that. But I've I've not seen the TED talk. I have to check it out. Yeah, because I remember seeing that come out first. I think that video came out maybe two or three years before um, the book. And he like literally just breaks down in like 10 minutes how Apple advertises. And like it's a computer company that sells the most phones in the world. And it's not even their like main source of business, how they first started. And he like literally because of their why they they advertise to your why. You know, like the whole like think different and all that kind of crap. Like their marketing strategies, it's like unbelievable. But anyway, we're getting off topic, so let's let's, <laughs> let's trickle back in here. But um, for the audience who don't know who you are, can you do a quick intro of who you are, what you do, and how did you get in this industry? Sure. Um, so I, I work as a physiotherapist, and I've been working as a physio since uh, 2012. Now, I did a degree in exercise science before that. Um, and really, my, my main work is based within the, the National Health Service or the NHS in the UK. Um, that takes up the, the majority of my working week. And then I do work for myself under the uh, the practice name of, of Rehab to Robust, where I uh, provide a very similar service, but it tends to be with more of the sort of active population um, and people involved in strength sports as a physio and as a, as a coach. Awesome. So how did you get to PT school? Like what made you look at that and go, you know what, this is for me. I need to get into this thing. Well, I think when I was when I was doing my exercise science degree, I enjoyed the the academic side of it. And I think from where I was doing it, the, the field of strength and conditioning was still quite a, a quiet profession. And there wasn't a huge deal of, of awareness about it. So it, it kind of passed me by. And then as I was getting towards the end of the, the degree, I, I got to the point where I realized there wasn't anything within exercise science in terms of like lab physiology or, or sports science support that was really appealing to me. And the, the idea of, of rehab and working with people in pain and with injuries, you know, that kind of sparked my interest in, in going into PT school. And here in the UK, we're able to do a, a two-year postgraduate certification in, in physiotherapy rather than having to do a, a three or a four year degree so it really allowed me to shortcut into the into the industry a lot quicker and and just get stuck in as quick as i could awesome so were you a coach before you got into your like exercise um, science degree no so that that's probably happened as a result of of being a physio so it's it's in the last three two to three years I've really been offering that as part of my my own practice and one of the reasons for doing that was I was I was working in and around other therapists and trainers and there was just this real gap for people who were good at coaching the you know the big lifts and strength-based exercise with respect to pain injury um, and then being able to pursue performance off the back of that and I think really where I started in 2012, the, the continuing education resources on, online were pretty poor for, for physio. And if you think around that time, people like uh, Eric Crezzi, Dean Somerset, Tony Gentical, etc., they were just churning out all this content on, you know, very, very fundamental strength and conditioning and, and rehab principles. And so my exposure to that stuff was a lot more 
than being able to, to pick up any online content for, for physio. So I think that's really where a lot of this interest sparked from. And what I've been able to do over the last six or seven years in working as a physio is really put that into practice and, and give people what is a solid rehab and performance exercise program rather than throwing shit at the wall and just seeing what sticks. And that, that seems to be the, you know, people's perception and experience of physio when, uh, when they've had a bad experience of it. And, you know, I'm really determined to try and change that perception that, you know, if you go to physio and you get exercise, that it doesn't have to be this, this remedial thing that's, you know, so far removed from everything that's meaningful to you. Yeah, like, I absolutely love that because, like, out here where I'm from, like, if you go to physio in Cairo, a lot of them, like, never even went to a gym. Like, they have no idea, like, because we have, like, CrossFit's a huge thing over here. And there's a lot of times I've heard in the clinic I work in, like, CrossFit athletes coming to me or the Cairo I work with where, you know, they had a bad experience with another physio or Kairos because they didn't really understand what a hand clean was. And that's where they, like, hurt their elbow, for example. But when they come to our clinic slash gym, like, we'll just take them over to the gym floor. It's like, hey, let's see how you move, first of all. Yeah. Right? And then the fact that we give them stuff that's not a shitty bird dog in clamshells, they're, like, blown away. <laughs> yeah. And and I think really my I mean my exposure to strength training has has really been over the last probably five or six years as well as just being in and around gyms for the last ten to fifteen years and you know be, being someone who is a a therapist who you know I've, I've held a triple bodyweight deadlift in the past I've held a, a six plate deadlift uh, you know between sort of eighty five and eighty seven kilos body weight so having that buy in from someone who is a crossfit athlete powerlifter bodybuilder strong man it's it's very easy to build rapport with someone when you can talk the same language as them and you know those are the people that i really enjoy working with because they're you know they're easily coached they're receptive to advice a lot of the time and i think they've often had you know bad experiences in the past of, of dealing with therapists who just don't understand the, the demands of that sport or activity you know in the same way i, I don't know a great deal about running or football or soccer as it might be to you guys um so i'm i'm comfortable in, in my scope and if i need to refer out to, to someone else who's got more expertise and i'm quite happy to do that um i get therapists to refer to me for you know for specific um assessments and advice on lifting based problems or, or athletes or clients so why do you think a lot of physios and chiros kind of don't dabble into more exercise stuff do you think this because, like, you know, they finish school and they're like, okay, hey, I'm done. I don't need to do any more. I think you have to go back to the sort of university level education for it. So in, in the UK, when people are training under uh, a physiotherapy program, a lot of it is based around the, the sort of inpatient side of physiotherapy. So people who are on a, you know, on a hospital ward who have recently had surgery. And the, the goal really is just to get these people home rather than back to their, their meaningful activities. So we didn't get a huge deal of exposure to uh, kind of exercise-based rehab. And a lot of the, the knowledge I've accumulated in the last seven or eight years has just been self-directed. I think we are starting to see a bit of a shift in how people are, uh, are learning these things and educating them. But in my day job, the majority of my sort of mentorship and supervision time is, is teaching people exercise progressions, coaching cues, and, and showing people how you can 
still maintain this kind of pursuit of fitness without flaring pain and, and giving people the confidence to get back into the things they want to do. Awesome. So I'm now kind of curious, like, what's your like clinic model? Like, how do you blend exercise and treatment together? So I I spend a lot more time on on exercise and a real sort of solid and thorough assessment because a lot of the the work that I do for myself is often second opinion work from uh, from either other people or from people who've, or patients who have seen other other therapists and. Part of the filter for that is that they've had the, you know, they've had the modalities, they've had soft tissue treatment, they've had, you know, manipulation, they've had needles, cupping, taping, and, and a lot of these things, if, if they're not working and they don't stick, people aren't really worried about having those things again. So I, I do less of that because it's not the way that I enjoy practicing with with patients and clients and i think there's always a way around that stuff um you know i I think for me i I feel like i can get most things better with with a good exercise approach my my kind of knowledge of manual therapy and and expertise is is enough to get by but if i need someone who's got a a good skilled pair of hands for whatever's necessary again I'm, i'm quite happy to punt it out because it's not the stuff that i enjoy doing a great deal of i'd rather be on the gym floor with people working in in that capacity yeah and i think people tend to forget like how powerful exercise can be because it's like the story i tell every new client i get is like you know a person comes in i ask them if they have any injuries they're like no but you know my shoulder sometimes gets sore my back sometimes gets sore and my knee just does this weird thing and i'm like okay fair enough then a couple months down the road i'm like oh how's your shoulder back and knee and they're like well I haven't really thought about it. The pain kind of just went away. And it's just because they started exercising. And you're like, who would have thought exercise was good for you? Yeah. And, I mean, you, you can be you can be as detailed or as specific as you want when it comes to exercise. So if, if I'm dealing with someone who hasn't exercised for enjoyment or fitness in the last few years, then I'm probably not too worried about how they choose to move or exercise because anything is, is going to be better than nothing. But... If I'm then working with someone who has a, a good mileage under their belt with with kind of training history and, and strength training, then those are the times where I think we have to be more specific with people. So you, you can choose to, you know, really specifically coach and cue people on, on certain things. For other people, the goal is just to motivate them to, to exercise. And, you know, I think that's where trainers and coaches are in this amazing position where if someone comes to you to work and they they do have pain they've still got you've already got this buy-in that they're willing to exercise because that's why they're seeking you out so you don't have to uh, kind of convince them or, or motivate them to be able to exercise and that's that's a huge bonus that i think a lot of trainers and coaches miss the miss the boat on there's a huge you know opportunity to work with these people Hundred percent. Um, the next thing I wanted to get into, you mentioned earlier that you're doing a deadlift seminar and I think like this is the stuff that people really need. And it's funny, like maybe a month ago I did the same thing with the chiropractor I work with. And like when I first got up there in front of all the people, just to get a, like a feel of the crowd, I asked everyone like who hears barbell deadlifted and like everyone hand goes up. I'm like, who hears hurt their back barbell deadlifting? Everyone's hand goes up. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see like you know, everyone knows the barbell deadlift and they just kind of assume that that's what they should be doing. But I was trying to kind of make a point that, you know, everyone's an individual. Everyone has 
different hips. Everyone has different lever lengths. Like it's such an individual thing. So I'm kind of curious, like how do you go about coaching the deadlift and what do you do for like an assessment for someone who's kind of brand new or has been dealing with some back pain when it comes to deadlifting? So I think the, the, the first thing I have to do is just ask people, you know, what, what problems are you having? Because some people will have, they'll, they'll come in with very specific issues and say, you know, when I'm, when I'm putting the bar off the floor, I will have issues with, you know, keeping my hips down or I'll, I'll feel pain in my back and I don't know why. Other people will say I can I can actually execute the deadlift and I feel okay on the day, but it's the day after. You know, my, my back is is sore. It's not just it doesn't feel worked. It just feels painful. And I think really you have to treat everyone as you say as, as an individual because for some people it will be to do with the the setup they take and the style of deadlifting they're using that may or may not be uh, appropriate and respectful to their their anatomy. For other people, it can be the position or the, the intent that they're using in performing that. So it becomes more of a, an execution problem. And then for other people, it can just be based around the, the kind of programming and the way they set their, their training routine up over the course of a, of a week or a month. So I've worked with some, some competitive powerlifters in the, the last couple of months. And you look at their technique and their, their execution, and it's, it's pretty good. You know, th- these are people that are doing it on a weekly basis for months and years and they, they've dialed into what feels good to them but it's then when you look at the the rest of the program and you look at how they're they're kind of maintaining volume or intensity or the, how their accessory exercises are set up and you can often gain quite a lot of information just by looking at someone's programming for, for the last two or three months and you can start to understand why the deadlift might itself might not be the problem, but it could just be tipping things over from being pain-free to being symptomatic in some way. So I think you need to be flexible in looking at the, the deadlifters itself, but also the bigger picture with that person as to why they may deem the deadlift to be a, a problem. So one thing I was going to ask you too is like, what's your opinion about like packing the neck or looking up while going up in your deadlift? Um, I'm not a fan of, I think if you're talking, looking up with your eyes, then I think you're fine. I think you're, you're maintaining a, uh, you know, we can call it a long spine, a neutral spine or, or whatever. Um, I don't often feel people do well when they crane and crank their neck up to the ceiling because often as you, you know, you'll see the, the, the neck will follow the eyes and the lower back will follow the neck. So if, if someone is cranking themselves to look right up towards the ceiling, then chances are you're putting someone in a very heavily extended and arched position. And you, you almost see the complete opposite with some people where they'll really tuck their chin in and actually start flexing their neck at the same time. And then you see the exact same thing happen down in the, in the lumbar spine. So Quite often with people, I'll say just just look six feet forwards in front of you. You know, if, if you need to create more more tension and, and intention with the deadlift, then yes, actively retracting and packing your neck can be a great tool. You know, if I'm working with 90, 95% effort lifts for myself, I will actively pack my chin in because I feel so much stiffer and more stable. And the rest of the lift just feels a lot more solid compared to if my neck is is relaxed or is is not tensioned. Do you ever coach like the tongue to the roof of your mouth? Because I remember, I think Charlie Weingroff said this is like, as you're getting into those maximal lifts, like just adding the tongue to the roof of your mouth can actually like improve neural drive. I don't know if it's true, but like, 
ever since I heard that, I started doing that. So I'm kind of curious if you've ever heard about that before. Yeah, I think um, I think Stu McGill's talked about it before as well. Um, so again, the, the idea of, of packing the neck and you say pushing the the tongue into the roof of the mouth, in theory, is is meant to improve uh, your cervical spine stability, which again probably translates into a, a more stable spine position. I wouldn't say I actively cue it, um, only because I think a lot of people do better with, you know, more of the big rock cues like creating a, a decent lifter's wedge or creating a lot of tension around the, the lats and, you know, kind of really gripping the bar. So I think if someone needs that last two or three percent that might take them from, you know, coming second versus winning a, a meet or, you know, missing a personal best or setting one, then I think you can use that. But I think everything else has to be in place first of all, because it might be that cue that takes someone to a point where they feel amazing. It might also be one cue too much where you distract them and then other things fall apart as a, as a result. Yeah. Um, so the next thing I wanted to talk about since we're talking about, you know, deadlifting and back pain is like as a clinician, what's your approach to get a patient out of low back pain? Cause like, now, we've been seeing a lot of people, especially now that the snow has been falling in Vancouver, people coming in because they've been shoveling their driveways and their back is just destroyed. So I'm kind of <laughs> curious about, like, what's your approach to low back pain in the clinic? Um, well, I think that the first thing you have to do is make sure that it's back pain that you're you're qualified to treat and deal with. Um so, you know, even as a, as a therapist, all, all back pain is not appropriate for me to, to deal with. And... You know, I think although we we can say that eighty five I think eighty five percent of low back pain doesn't have this this kind of sinister or, or worrying cause to it, there will still be these outliers that will present with you know with back pain that could be you know a, a fracture or a, a massive disc herniation that needs some kind of emergency investigation or surgical input. Um, it could be people with cancer. You know that that's the reality of what you're dealing with with back pain. So the first thing really has to be make sure that person is is in the right place in dealing uh, or to, to be dealt with. But if we go past that and take the, the majority of patients as having non-serious back pain, um, I think really you have to understand where that person is, and and that you know that includes physically so how how are they moving what motions loads and postures are kind of aggravating or relieving their pain but also from a, a psychosocial standpoint as well you know how how worried about their pain is this person in front of us because if you're if you're failing to acknowledge someone's concerns or worries or anxieties you, you're missing a real opportunity to calm their pain down just by telling them this isn't serious and you're going to be okay you know, how, how many people go into a, uh, a therapist's office with back pain thinking, oh, I, I just want a bit of relief or, I, you know, I want to get this sorted. And they come out and they're told, oh, I've, I've got, a, you know, an L5 disc, you know, my L5 has slipped, my pelvis is anteriorly rotated, I've got an upslip SIJ. You know, people come out with more problems than they go in with. And, and I think what we have to do in those cases is, is give people the, the reassurance that they can get better and they will get better and that's often one of the things that we we really miss yeah i, I think the language is so important because like i've heard from other you know patients that have come to our clinic and you know they start telling you what their other therapist said and they're like yeah and i can't do this and i can't do that 
And honestly, I think it's like if you had someone that's so vulnerable in front of you and all you tell them is like, yeah, you know, we got some work to do, but, you know, in six to eight weeks, we can definitely improve it. And then they're like, oh, shit, I'm going to get better. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think we, you know, it's, it's really easy to uh, to kind of ignore that. And I think in the last few years, if you look at the, the trends on on social media, pe- people are, are really acknowledging this this model of we are robust and we're adaptable and we, we do get better. Um, I mean, I've, I've got a patient that one of my colleagues saw uh, about a year ago, and this, this chat was re- referred in from a, a spinal surgeon. And I can't remember whether it was uh, like a post-operative patient or, or whether he'd just been seen by um, by this consultant. But this this guy came in and was told that he had to he had to look after his little discs in his back. So this guy comes in with you know all of these kind of worries that if he bends over he's gonna you know he's gonna shit his disc out his back and you know he's gonna be disabled if he if he does anything wrong. And and actually you look at him and he's he's moving pretty well. You know he's he's not in any immediate risk of harm, but. He's not been told that. He's been told to, to be vigilant and be cautious and, and, you know, really think about everything. And I think actually sometimes the best thing that you can do as a therapist is, is be quite laid back and almost kind of blasé about things and just say, look, you know, you've got a bit of pain at the moment. You, you're telling me that this hurts and that hurts. So let's let's just avoid or, or manage how we do that for the time being. But let's do these other things that feel really good. And let's get you out of pain and back to the things that you want to do. And all of a sudden, that person comes out of your appointment feeling, you know, like they, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And they, they look forward to getting back into exercise rather than worrying that they're going to blow their back out again. Have you ever seen in the clinic um, where people with like high amounts of anxiety and depression makes their pain even worse? Oh, all the time. Yeah. All the time. And I think that that's where, you know, if, if you're talking kind of pain science with, with patients as well, it's, it's a bit of a sensitive subject to address in some way. So if, if you go in and say, you know, your, your anxiety and your depression is making your pain worse... And they say, well, I didn't know I was anxious or depressed, you know, and then it kind of feeds into this thing of, oh, are you telling me the pain is all in my head and, you know, my, my back isn't the problem. Um, but, you know, we, we know that people with with anxiety, with low mood, who don't sleep well, people who are highly stressed, you know, th- these things don't impact on the the health of the tissue, you know, your your discogenic back pain is is not made any more severe by being worried about it or not sleeping well, but the pain response to that can be wound right up because your your system is not coping as well. Yeah, like it's it's interesting because like as a coach, you know, I sometimes I get taken back how close clients are to you because they'll start telling you like really personal stuff. And then now, ever since I started working in this clinic with uh, the chiropractor that's in there and chatting with those patients, it's even like deeper conversations. And I'm like, holy crap, like our job is more psychologist than coach and, you know, physical therapist. Yeah. And and I think to, to get comfortable with the, the variety of people that you see, you, you need a certain level of mileage with, you know, with patients and clients. And I said, I've, I've been working for seven years going into my eighth as a, as a physio. And it's, it's probably only in the last year or two that I can, I can feel quite comfortable with these patients who are, 
you know, highly stressed or anxious or worried about their pain and, and be comfortable to reassure them that, you know, they are going to get better. Because until you've seen that people get better and that these people who are more, more highly stressed or, you know, your type A personalities, you know, you don't know if they get better. And you, you need to see these people run through that process of, of getting better to be then comfortable reassuring patients. And, you know, there are times where, you know, therapists will say just, just kind of blag it, you know, re really kind of almost fake that confidence because if you're confident that someone will get better and you're not worried there's anything serious, that person will feed off of that, that positive energy from you. Oh, definitely. Um, now that we're talking about pain, like this is where I get interested. Cause like a good example I t sometimes tell people is like, I have one client with one disc herniation and like her whole body will just be in pain. She'll wake up one day and be like, holy crap, I can't go to work. Everything is to shit. And then I have another client where she has, I think, three or four herniated discs. And like, yeah, she has her bad days, but most of the time she's like, good to go. She's having great workout sessions and is she'll only have a bad day if she does like three hours of like manual labor in her backyard, right? <laughs> so it's like really interesting to like compare these two people where obviously one is a lot worse but feels a lot better but this one person like just because she had one kind of like hiccup in her journey of fitness and health like her whole body just tells her to f off so i'm kind of curious like how do you i don't even know how i can make this into a question but like what have you seen in the clinic when it comes to like pain tolerance and things like that well, I think you, I mean, you have to acknowledge that pain is this sort of wonderfully complex and, and subjective experience. And if you, you know, you look at the, the San Diego Pain Summit started today, it's, it's five days long and it's just on pain. So, you know, there are so many things that, that impact on it. And the, the way that I, I tend to explain, you know, whether we're talking about pain tolerances or, or pain thresholds to patients is, you know, everything matters that goes on in your life. It just matters in different quality, you know, different quantities depending on what's going on. So, you know, if we take the, the two examples you've talked about there, you've you've got one person who who probably copes quite poorly when when they have a, a flare up, and you know, they they're they're worried that their pain has got worse. They might be, you know, thinking that they're really fragile and that things are going to get really bad if they don't rest and and do anything. You know, you've then got the patient on the other end of the spectrum who who is probably quite stoic and, and copes very well with their pain. And as you said, you know, if, if they're doing sort of three hours of, of manual labor that's beyond what they normally do, they, they've probably just surpassed what their their body is routinely comfortable with. You know, maybe if they do an hour, they're all right. They do two hours, they're all right. Do two and a half hours and they're all right. But then you, you just push that over the threshold and then they become symptomatic. But even then, that, that kind of person just gets on with it. And, and I think that that's one of the, the biggest challenges is we, we have to know when to push people and, and reassure them that it's okay to, to do a bit more and not worry about their pain as much. But there's also times where it's entirely appropriate to pull people back. And, you know, for those people, you can still say to them, I don't, I don't think you're causing any harm or, or any damage by you know, continuing to do this activity with back pain or do this thing with back pain, um, but you're just winding that pain up. And and if you can deal with that, then then that's fine. But 
the time where people often come to, to clinic is when their their ability to do the things they enjoy is is compromised and i was listening to a podcast with jacob harden recently and one of the things he said was pete you know people deal well with pain but it's the disability that comes with pain and it's when you can't do the things that you want to do that people have problems and that's where you then start to see the the stress or the anxiety or the worry um you know context is huge with, with those things so you know, if you take two people with, um, with you know, Achilles pain, one of them's a runner and one of them is a powerlifter, chances are the powerlifter is not going to be too bothered, you know, if they squat, bench and deadlift with their Achilles being a little bit sore. You ask a, a runner to, to do the same thing and their world falls apart because they, they can't run without their, you know, their ankle killing them. But then you take the same thing if you take someone with flexion-based back pain and all of a sudden the, the powerlifter can't squat, they can't deadlift, um, the runner's not bothered because they're, they're upright and they, they can deal with that. So, you know, it's, it's really appreciating what, what is important to that person and, and how meaningful is it to be doing their activity that then plays into how tolerant they are to their pain because some people will quite happily push through it and other people prefer to, to back off and, you know, really kind of dial in what they do but in doing so, are they, are they causing themselves more issues in the long term? No, definitely. And I think, like, mental strength is huge, too, because, like, one of the stories I bring up a lot with clients and patients is, like, I have this one client where she was doing a cycling event, and it was during a time here in BC when we have these big windstorms, and she's riding her bike, and one of the trees that was on the road uh, actually broke, fell on her, uh, broke her back. I can't remember if it was severed or not. And that same like weekend when she was like rushed to the hospital, she was like texting me saying like, by the way, not going to make it on Monday. Broke my back. I'm like, what? And then she started sending me like x-rays. I'm like, oh my God. So she's like fused from like T9 to T11 with like these giant mm. metal rods in there. <laughs> and that happened like mid-August, and her first session back with me was like December fifteenth, and I'll never like forget that date because it was like, holy shit, you're like here with like fucking metal rods in your back. <laughs> we didn't do a lot, like a lot of it was just like chatting and like let's get her to move. But like even in that session, she's like, why are we doing all this stupid shit? Let's like lift some fucking weight. I'm like, okay, hang on, like, <laughs> but yeah. like the moment she like woke up out of surgery, she was like, okay, I need to like plan my chiro, my physio, my massage. Like it was just like another thing that she had to do. Like it wasn't like, oh my god, my life's over, everything is the shit. And like the following year, she ended up doing that same ride, and it was like a really big deal. But it's like I look at her, I'm like, fuck, she's so mentally strong, like shit like that doesn't ever like just phase her it's just like oh yeah. this is another thing i need to do and and this is where you know pe people need to be treated as individuals because you 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 know in any injury you, you have to respect the fact that there has been some sort of tissue compromise or or injury to it but how how people view the world and how they take their life on has a massive impact on how they they cope and deal with pain so you know, for that, that same injury for someone else, they could just fall apart. You know, they could just go into their shell, you know, avoid doing everything. And you then start to see all the secondary effects that happen from, from not exercising and, and not being active. And, 
you know, how, how many times do you see these people who are, are mentally strong are, are told by their, you know, their surgeon or their doctor, oh, you, you're never going to be able to do this again. And it's almost like a challenge for these people. You know, they think, well, actually, no, I'm, I'm going to do this just to prove you wrong. I, I almost don't care if this causes me any problems further down the line. You've told me I can't do something, so I'm going to do it. No, definitely. Um, actually, one question just popped in my head, and I remember asking this to Charlie Weingroff, and, and I think this is a good question for any kind of physical therapist. It's like, what is one condition that you have such a hard time treating that you wish you could do better on? Uh, frozen shoulder. Okay, fair enough. It's, uh, so so tip, typically with a frozen shoulder, um, they tend to pitch up in clinic probably a few months on from from where it started. And, and if we're lucky, they'll come in without any uh, like established capsular stiffness because once that thing is stiff, you know, you might as well write off the next six to 18 months. You know, you, you can certainly exercise it and use it and you can try, you know, your manual therapies and, and things like that to help with it. But it's, it's one of these conditions that does just take time to get better. You know, there are some emerging kind of surgical approaches and things like that that can help it. But if, if someone's coming into my clinic and I can see they've got a real loss of, you know, external rotation of the shoulder, my, my heart starts to sink and I'm getting worried about the conversation I'm about to have. You know, it's, it's not fun when you have to break news and say, this, this could be with you for, you know, nearly two years. And there's not a great deal that can be done about it. That's, you know, that's a tough conversation. I think also with frozen shoulder too is like I have one client that's been dealing with it for like fuck I don't know six years <laughs> but yeah. he's like the typical dude where he's like ah oh, it's just gonna get better and he'll like go to physio once and that's about it maybe like when it flares up where it's really bad he'll go back again maybe two times but doesn't really actually actively try to get it better because he's just like in his head he's like oh it's just gonna heal but i'm like dude you're like 63 like get your shit together <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's tough because i think a, a lot of you know the, the narrative for, for most therapists for, for any condition is generally you know th this will get better with time you just need to keep doing what you're doing and you need to just you know get on with your life but actually when you look at some of the long-term follow-ups research on, on frozen shoulder you, you've got people between seven and 20 years post onset that still have you know a marked restriction of movement and that that's almost quite difficult to you know to say to someone you know this should get better when you know that some of the research doesn't always agree with it so you know sometimes for, for the person that's a little bit naive almost and just ignores it and gets on with it sometimes that's a pretty good way of coping you know i'd, I'd rather have someone like that than someone who you know, does absolutely nothing with their arm and is, is worried that by using it, they're going to make it worse. You know, the, the, the kind of happy middle ground is the person that actively looks after themselves and understands what's going on. But, you know, it's, it's still pragmatic that it's going to take time to get better. Oh, definitely. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask is like out in the UK, are you guys allowed to do IMS or dry needling? Yeah. So we, we have some interesting um, approaches on it. So, up until a few years ago, it was principally uh, kind of healthcare professionals, so whether it's medical practitioners or, or therapists that were able to do it. And, and in the last few years, what we've seen is that dry needling has become accessible to uh, like sports massage therapists and, and soft tissue therapists, as well as uh, spinal manipulation from uh, sort of the thoracic spine down. So 
that the scope of these of these practitioners who aren't trained and registered as healthcare professionals are now able to do these you know these techniques or methods that have been largely kept within a healthcare environment for a long time. Um, I don't know whether it's a good thing or not at the moment. Um, I think there are some very very responsible and very knowledgeable um, soft tissue therapists that use these tools to great effect. I think there are some people that are quite irresponsible with them, and I don't think so, that I don't think everyone should be able to do a one-day course and then be able to, you know, to go in and use these things if they're not a trained healthcare professional. Sometimes, yeah, because I know here in BC, like as a physiotherapist, to get the IMS certification, I think it's over two weekends, so you get about like thirty-five hours. But what's also interesting is like naturopathic medicine in BC. They spend about a year and a half on like traditional acupuncture and dry needling. And I'm like, holy crap, like we should be going to NDs for freaking dry needling and not a physio because it's like just based on the hours. And like they also work in the clinic setting doing that, too. But uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. Like if, for, for the people who don't know what dry needling and IMS is like, what is it? What is it and what does it do to the body? So, so yeah, so you, you've got, to, I mean, you've got two types of, of needling-based therapy. So you, you've got dry needling and IMS, as you talked about there. You've also got um, kind of acupuncture under whether it's a traditional Chinese medicine model or a, a Western uh, acupuncture model. And, you know, what, what it does or doesn't do still seems to be quite, quite hotly debated. So I think at a, a fundamental level with mechanisms, we can say that it, it can reduce local muscle tone. It can induce this uh, this sort of systemic pain relieving effect, or, or what we call it, endogenous analgesia. Um, I think with the, you know, there's a lot of debate around the the existence and the treatment of trigger points. Um, I, I don't know where I stand on that at the moment because the the evidence is is there for and against. Um, it's not something I, I spend a lot of time communicating with with patients because I don't find it leads anywhere. Um, but I think as, as part of a treatment model, you know, dry needling and IMS certainly has a place. But I think when someone advertises themselves as a dry needler or an IMS therapist, I, I get concerned that they've got this this big hammer and they think everything they see is a nail. So everyone gets, you know, everyone gets needles and it often comes at the expense of, of other, you know, other things like exercise and, and rehab. Fair enough. Now, the other ones that I wanted to get your opinion on is like cupping, instrument-assisted, and rock tape. What do you think of those three? Oh, uh, loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So just to put it into context, the the things that I have learned about in the past and courses and things that I've done, I've I've done Western acupuncture, I've done uh, dry needling, I've done spinal manipulation. I've done uh, my injection therapy. So in, in the UK, physiotherapists are able to inject uh, kind of steroid or, or cortisone and, and local anaesthetic. Um, I've not ever taken a taping course. I've not done a huge deal of, of sort of soft tissue certifications. Um, and I think what we have to ask with any of these these tools is what are we looking to achieve with them? Because we can say that they they all work. You know if if you put some tape on someone, if you do some soft tissue massage, if you stick some needles in someone, if you give someone a cortisone shot, they they will feel better. They they will feel better. But 
we need to ask, you know, what what is the biological plausibility of what we're doing and how we're explaining it? So, you know, we, we don't know entirely why taping works. We don't know entirely why soft, soft tissue treatment works for some people and not others. Um, we know that we're unlikely to have any kind of structural effect on, on the body. You know, t- taping is unlikely to change structure. Soft tissue treatment is unlikely to break down scar tissue. Spinal manipulation is unlikely to realign stuff. Um, but all of these things will provide pain relief to people. And that, that shouldn't be overlooked. If, if someone is in pain and you've tried exercise, you've tried coaching, you've tried reassurance, and if, if none of that stuff is getting that person to feel more confident with moving and using their body, I don't think there's anything wrong with using those tools as a method of short-term pain relief. But I think you need to understand that it could have a specific mechanism of action. So it could be doing something. Um, it could just be placebo. It could be meeting someone's expectation because they've had, you know, they've had their back cracked in the past and it really helped with their pain. But, you know, are you just giving someone a, a quick dopamine hit because you've given them what they've asked, you know, you've given them what they've asked for, or are you actively doing something that empowers this person to, to do more? And, you know, it's, it seems to be really hotly debated at the moment. And, you know, we've almost got into this dichotomy of, of hands-on versus hands-off therapy. And I don't think you need to be in, in either camp. I think the demands of my of my job in the, in the National Health Service mean that I don't get a great deal of time with people and I don't get a lot of time with people very often. So my, my time is better spent doing other things. But if I've got an hour with someone and I can see a clear reason to to do something with my hands that's going to help to encourage them to move or to feel better or to just leave that session feeling more confident and reassured, then I'll do that. But what I I disagree with is the, the narrative that some people put across when they're talking about these things. So you know let's let's say you come to me and your your low back is painful and it's pretty stiff and I I tell you that your L4 on L5 is is stiff and is subluxed. And then I manipulate your lumbar spine and you can touch your toes and you think I'm the best therapist ever. Now, what happens when you go back home and you do something and your back pain comes back? Your assumption is going to be that, oh, my, my L4 must be, you know, must be subluxed again. I'll go back and see Alex and he'll, you know, he'll do this again for me. You know, I've, I've not done anything there that encourages and empowers you to, to look after yourself. And it, enc- it can encourage this, this sort of dependency on the therapist to fix you rather than to facilitate your recovery and, and well-being. And, and this is why, you know, when people turn up in my clinic, they've, you know, they've spent in some cases thousands of pounds on, on treatment that's given them no more than a few days to maybe a couple of weeks worth of relief. If you go down a route of exercise, education, reassurance, People don't need that much input, and and again, you you give people self-efficacy rather than rob them of it, and and I think it's it's very easy when you're you know if you're in full-time private practice here and your mortgage payments are dependent on how many people you, you see, 
of course you're going to see people more if you need to, but it's, it's irresponsible. And, and I think that's why you, you need to have this happy medium when it comes to using modalities that get people to do more, but without becoming reliant on you. Awesome. So I think that would be a good place to stop because I feel like you can like just keep going on forever. But uh, <laughs> maybe for the last uh, question, if people wanted to find out more about you and what you do, where can they find you online and what other projects do you have coming out and anything else you want to plug on my show, you can right now. Okay, so uh, so if you want to find me on social media, um, if you go on Facebook or Instagram and search for Rehab Number Two Robust, uh, you'll find me there. So just look for for Alex Krzyzewski. Uh That's where I put out a lot of content just on how how to maintain a fitness and training effect whilst you're dealing with pain, and and that's really where I put a lot of my you know my own time into showing people that they can still train if if they're in pain and. Um, recently was involved in the, the complete trainer's toolbox. Um, and in that I've, I've done a three hour dive on, on training with back pain and, and showing fitness professionals how to appropriately assess and, and train people with back pain again, to get them back to the things that they, they want to do. Um, what else have I got? I've got a deadlift workshop this, this Saturday. Um, and then in May, I think I've got a seminar at one of the gyms I work out of on, uh, on shit therapists say so t- taking the again taking the these poor narratives and trying to find a happy medium in a you know with a group of, of coaches and, and therapists so I'm, I'm really looking forward to writing that one awesome so thank you so much for your time this was amazing thanks for having me boom so that's going to wrap up episode 213 with alec krasetsky hopefully you enjoyed that one as much as i did and huge huge announcement If you haven't listened to my solo episode already, click the show notes right after this episode because I have released a little teaser of my book called The Ironclad Body Training System and you can get on the pre-sale list where you're gonna get the link first before anyone else with the pre-sale price. And people have already been putting their names and emails down so don't miss out, hit the show notes, Get on that pre-sale list. All I need is your name and email. Boom, that's it. Three seconds of your time, and you will be the first to witness and experience the Ironclad Body, my first ever fitness ebook. That's it for me. Until next time, you guys.